Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 38. Psalm 38 will be the psalm we're in this morning as we continue to make our way through book one of the Psalter. And uh, as you're turning there, um, I won't make a correction uh, to Will. I'll just uh, add to it or to, to emphasize um, that, yes, one of the problems, um, perhaps the chief problem of the Pharisees, the Sadducees like them, and many other Jewish sects of the day was not that they were religious. And sometimes that gets... Um, it gets put in, in the way in which you know, Jesus is um, he's not looking for religious people, uh, but sinners. But Christianity, even the book of James says, is religion. <laughs> the issue is whether or not the religion is true. And the fundamental problem with many of those in Jesus' day is that they believe that their religion and their traditions was the means by which They were righteous before God. And as long as they did all of the prescribed things that they were supposed to be doing, they they had no need of a Savior because they could save themselves. So Jesus is indeed looking for those who know themselves to be great sinners in need of a Savior. He's looking for those who are very much like David in our psalm that we'll look at this morning. Someone who sees themselves as a sinner in need of the grace of the Lord. And so we'll, we'll consider this matter, we'll consider specifically the matter of conviction, uh, conviction of sin as we look at Psalm 38 uh, this morning. Uh, You can notice with me, this also is a psalm of David that the superscript says. It says, for the memorial offering, probably better translated as just um, for remembrance or to to cause there to be remembrance. And we read beginning in verse 1, David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before You. My sighing is not hidden from You. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for You, O Lord, do I wait. It is You, O Lord my God, who will answer. 
For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Lord, when we sin against You, and when we violate Your commands, when the witness of our conscience screams at us that this sin is evil and damnable and we pursue it anyways, At a certain point, if we belong to You, You will not let us live in peace with it. And You will bring the might of Your disciplining hand. You will bring the the rod which seems to be a terror upon us. Yet what we know from Your Word is that it is for our good. It is a gracious thing You do for us when You convict us of our sin so that we would not continue to walk in it, but that we would see it for what it truly is, a festering wound that needs to be healed. So that as we see it for what it is, we would then look to You for who You are as the Savior of sinners. That We would be able to say of ourselves and of You that You are the God of my salvation. So I pray, Lord, that we would not be ignorant of the means that You use to Direct us in accordance with Your will that we would heed the convicting work of the Spirit. That we would cultivate sensitive consciences that despise sin and love Your honor. And thus walk in a manner pleasing to You. So Lord, teach us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Bridges was a minister in the 19th century who wrote a very well-known book called The Christian Ministry. And uh, it has the subtitle, With an Inquiry into the Causes of Its Inefficiency. Bridges in this book wanted not only to provide a positive exposition of what Scripture taught about the nature of the church and the roles and the responsibilities of shepherds, but he also wanted to address many of the problems that he saw within it, the causes of its inefficiency. And by inefficiency, Bridges was not so much interested in questions about administrative processes and budgets and programs and numbers. He was focused on the church's spirituality, her spiritual health, and her spiritual efficiency. What are the kinds of things 
that make a church and even her ministers unspiritual and ineffective and unfruitful in the kingdom of God. And among the many things that he addresses is the danger for ministers to treat a variety of spiritual experiences very lightly. For example, when speaking about common cases that will arise from people within the church, the the, the variety of different problems, sins, convictions, all of the different things that happen within the life of the church. As he's speaking about or writing about all of these different common cases that will arise, Bridges addresses the particular matter of what he calls natural versus spiritual convictions. People within the church will be convicted about something. There is some sin that is troubling them. Their conscience has been pricked. And when the pastor is made aware of it, he has to take care to treat it and to address it with all biblical wisdom. He cannot just slap a band-aid on all conviction as if it's all the same. He can't just tell everyone the same thing. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I believe in Jesus. Okay, well then believe in the promises of the Gospel and and be well. You, You can't just deal with all of the problems in the same way. You can't deal with conviction in the same way. You can't just say, believe the Gospel and be well. He is called the minister. The minister is called to watch over souls. Which means, among other things, that when he is speaking with someone who is dealing with conviction, who is dealing with guilt, he has to discern the nature of the conviction first. What is its character? What are its defining marks? Is the person convicted only because their sin has been discovered and has come to light? Or is there also a loathing, a hatred of their sin? Is there only a fear of God's wrath that is bringing the conviction Or is there also a regard for His honor and His glory? A recognition that that my sin has dishonored my Lord whom I love. There are many things that must be considered to discern the nature of conviction. Whether it is of the kind that comes just from natural guilt, or if it is the kind that is spiritual and sanctifying and that leads to repentance and holiness of life. And distinguishing between the two kinds of conviction is imperative because a misdiagnosis will lead to mistreatment. Bridges rightly points out in the book that both Peter and Stephen preached the same Gospel in Acts 2 and in Acts 7 respectfully. And both of their hearers were provoked. But only one group in a saving way. Peter's hearers, after hearing him proclaim the Gospel, asked, What must we do to be saved? They recognized the heinousness of their sin that that by their own hands they had crucified the Lord of glory. 
And in desperation, they're wondering, can I be saved? They're provoked to repentance. While Stephen's hearers were provoked, but were enraged. And they closed their ears, and they stoned him to death. They were both convicted, but the nature of their conviction was different and produced different fruit. And if the ministers of the church do not probe deeply, if they do not search and inquire and press to discern the nature of a person's conviction, at best, that person may remain in a state of spiritual immaturity. But at worst, they may be assured by the promises of the Gospel when as yet they still do not know Him of whom the Gospel is about. And much spiritual unhealth, much immaturity, much of the problems that are present within churches is because sin and conviction is treated so lightly. In many cases, it's not even considered. That's not something we want to think about. We just want to think about all the positives. We don't want to consider the reality of spiritual warfare. That the life of the Christian is one in which now, if you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, you're at war. And the old man, the man of the flesh, hates the new man. And the new man, which is being renewed in the likeness and image of Christ by the power of the Spirit, hates the old man because he crucified him. There's a battle. Oftentimes, we don't want to think about the battle. We want to make our way on the battlefield and pretend as if there's no war. It's over. And because of this, many remain in immaturity for a long time and many more are deceived. As Bridges warned, a slight healing is the prelude to the most fatal delusion. When it comes to conviction, especially, there is a real danger in confusing the presence of conviction with real spiritual life. Which is to say that many people today, and many Christians included in this, believe that because they feel guilty about something, that this alone is good evidence that they know the Lord. I lied. And I feel guilty about it. I know I have sinned. And therefore, by definition... I know I'm a sinner. And then you make the connection. Jesus died for sinners. I go to church on Sunday to sing praises to Jesus who died for sinners like me. Therefore, I must be saved. But let us not forget the example of Saul. In 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Samuel 26, he confessed that he had sinned against David. He recognized his sin. He acknowledged his sin. He said to David himself, I have sinned against you. He confessed that he had sinned against the Lord and the Lord's anointed in David. He even blessed David. And in just a couple of chapters, he's breaking the Lord's commands by inquiring from mediums. 
in just a couple of chapters. He's involved in paganism. And even right after this happens, right after he blesses David, David flees because he doesn't believe Saul's words. The narrative tells us that all this was were words. The right words, no doubt, but not words that indicated a reality of an internal change. Let us not forget Judas as well, who himself, when he betrayed Jesus, confessed, I have sinned before hanging himself. The fruit that their convictions bore was rotten, and it proved to have nothing of the Spirit at work within them. And so we cannot treat the spiritual life lightly. And we certainly ought not to confuse natural conviction with spiritual conviction. And so this morning I want us to look at what true spiritual conviction is. This is a psalm that provides for us a perfect opportunity to consider this very thing because it is a psalm in which David himself speaks of his own convictions and what their causes are and ultimately what the remedy is. And so we'll consider this subject together. Now, to begin, I want to be clear on what I mean by conviction. By conviction, I am not talking about strong beliefs. Right? I, I, I am a Baptist by conviction. Right? I believe that the Scripture actually teaches Baptist doctrine. It is the Scriptures that teach us about the nature and the ordering of the church. And I am thoroughly convinced that it is of a Baptist kind. Right? This isn't just a, uh, you just pick whatever you want to on a given month, right? There's, there's conviction in that sense. Strong beliefs. But I'm not referring to conviction in that way. Neither am I referring to a kind of worldly sorrow where the conscience merely condemns and we feel our guilt, but do not turn to God. That is a form of conviction. And in fact, that is one of the works of the Spirit. What He does to the world in convicting them of judgment, of sin, of righteousness. It's what Bridges called a natural conviction, but it's not saving. It's not spiritual. It doesn't produce repentance. It doesn't lead one to turn in a hatred of their sin to God. By conviction, I am referring to that spiritual work of God by which our heart and conscience is pricked. Our sin is exposed with the purpose of bringing us to repentance and faith in Him. It is the kind of conviction that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 14 when he speaks of an unbeliever entering the church and the secrets of his heart are disclosed by the prophetic Word. He is convicted. He is called to account. And he falls on his face to worship God. Or what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. He says, To those whom I love, I reprove. I convict and discipline. So be zealous 
and repent. This is spiritual conviction and what we want to consider. And the first thing that we should consider about spiritual conviction is its source. What is the source of conviction? Where does it come from? Well, one source of conviction is, of course, our sin. A knowledge and an awareness of our sin may not be something that is sufficient in bringing us to repentance, but it certainly cannot be absent. There can be no repentance and there can be no true saving faith if you don't see and recognize and acknowledge the heinousness of your own sin. There's many people who profess a faith in Jesus because it's the cool thing to do. And everybody's getting the t-shirts and there's excitement and you get a coffee mug afterwards and, and there's an incentive along those carnal lines to profess faith. But a believer, one who has been converted, comes to Christ because they see in Christ the Savior. And they see in themselves a sinner in need of a Savior. Our sin brings conviction. And this is what we see David speaking about and what he's troubled by all throughout the psalm. At the end of verse 3, he says, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. In verse 4, he says, for my iniquities have gone over my head. And in verse 5, he says, My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. This is what he sees. His sin. He has a deep and profound awareness of it. We don't know exactly at this point what it was at this time. Whether it was the sin with Bathsheba, whether it was the subsequent murder to try and cover it up. It It could have been his negligence in bringing the ark to Jerusalem that led to Uzzah's death. It could have been a host of different things. And it probably was many things. Since he speaks here of my iniquities in the plural. But the point is that one of the sources of the conviction that he's experiencing and which troubles his soul is his sin. But of course, it's also not his sin alone that brings conviction. Rather, it is the fact that the Lord is convicting him of it. It's the Lord's chastening hand. It is his disciplining rod that is the chief source of his conviction. In verse 2, David speaks of the Lord's arrows sinking into him and His hand coming down on him. In verse 3, he says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. And of course, in that same verse, we see that the Lord's indignation is in response to and because of David's sin. The Lord is not convicting David for no reason. There is just cause. He has sinned. He has violated God's Word. His sense of guilt does not arise because he's violated the laws of man or gone against the standards of society or broken the bonds of some social contract. He's not thinking here about the cultural will of the people and what's acceptable among men. It arises... His conviction arises because the Lord is rebuking him and because the laws of God have been broken. 
His loss of peace is present because He's displeased the Lord. And this, friends, this is a grace. It is a grace because if a man can have peace in his sin, then he has been utterly rejected by God and proves that he is not one of God's children because those whom he loves, he disciplines. But what must be recognized is that when we are convicted of sin, that conviction comes from the Lord. He is the Lord of the conscience. And we must recognize it as such because it is intended for our good. It is intended, the Lord's work in this way is intended to awaken us, to sober us up, to pour a bucket of cold water over our heads because we've been asleep drifting down the river of iniquity. We've been wandering aimlessly, walking blindly in sin and heading towards a cliff of destruction. And conviction, conviction is the Lord's means by which He warns us of danger before the danger kills us. But of course, when that conviction comes, we find, do we not, that it is a very unpleasant experience. This is the second point that I want us to consider about conviction which is the experience of conviction. This is what most of this psalm describes in great detail. David's own experience of the Lord's convicting work. And there's many different aspects to it. For one thing, conviction can feel like a heavy weight weighing down the soul. David says, again in verse 4, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. If you've ever read John Bunyan's classic book, The Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory of the Christian life, the main character in that book, Christian, lives in the city of destruction. The city that is doomed to perish, which of course represents the world. And Christian wants to escape. And he wants to, to go to the paradise of the celestial city. But his journey there initially is virtually impossible because he walks around with a heavy burden on his back. It's like walking around with a backpack with 500 pounds of weights in it. And that, that burden upon him was, of course, a symbol for his sin. He would never make it to the celestial city as long as this, this overbearing burden had to be carried by him. This is what David is describing. His sins are an unbearable burden. He does not have the strength, the capability to carry it. They make it hard to breathe. It's like walking up a steep mountain when your legs grow tired and you're short of breath and you're mentally weary. You can't even think properly. This conviction is a burden to the soul. And with this also comes a broken heart. A sorrowful heart. A heart that lacks peace. In verse 6, David says that all day he goes about mourning. 
In verse 8, he says, I groan because of the tumult of my heart. In verse 10, my heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. Conviction can feel as heavy, as weighty, and as sorrowful as the grief of losing a loved one. It can be very much the same kind of experience. The cause of the heart's sorrow is no doubt different, but the chaos, the pain, the internal confusion, the waves of emotion can be very much the same. And this can result even in physical effects and physical weakness. We tend to view our spiritual life as something that is altogether different and, 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 and disconnected from our physical life. But friends, this is more so the result of a syncretistic way of thinking. We often look at other parts of the world where Christianity exists. Africa, Southeast Asia. You often hear about the problems with syncretism. You hear about it in the Middle East. You have many people who have taken Christianity and they've wedded it together with Islam and created some monster. Or they, they've, they've taken their Christianity and they've, they've joined it together with witchcraft and created another abomination. And it can be very easy to, to look out there and go, look, that syncretism is bad. And yet we do the very same thing. We may not do it with witchcraft and with Islam, but we certainly do it all the time with secularism. It is our syncretistic pull. It is what our culture bends us towards. And many times the way that we think about our own lives is a mixture of Christianity and secularism. Where there is almost a complete and total disconnect from the physical and the spiritual. But what we find in Scripture is that there can be and there is a very close connection between our spiritual health and our physical health. As David speaks of his own experience, he speaks of his very body being affected. In verse 3, he says, there is no soundness in my flesh. There's no health in my bones. In verse 10, again, he says his strength is failing him. And in verse 11, he speaks of his And while these descriptions need not be taken literally to suggest that David had a literal plague and sickness of some kind, like Job being afflicted with loathsome sores, they nevertheless speak to the real physical weakness of body that David is experiencing. Again, we can understand this when we think of things like grief. And worry and depression. They are feelings, they are experiences that can be physically paralyzing. You're so overwhelmed with grief that you don't even want to get out of bed. You're incapable of it. You've been weakened. And that's what David is saying of his conviction. It has made him weak and feeble. And he says, he says, he can barely move. There is real physical experience of pain and conviction. But even more, we find in this psalm that conviction can even come with real external afflictions and consequences. David had no doubt sinned, and because of his sin, he even finds some of his closest companions now forsaking him. 
My friends and companions, he says in verse 11, stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. They are distancing themselves from Him. Perhaps even in a time when He needs them most. He needs His friends to pick Him up and to carry Him and to walk with Him, especially as He Himself sees the ugliness of His sin and as He is repenting of it. He needs His companions to help Him to recover from the fall. But here He says, they are utterly forsaking Him. Moreover, His enemies are using this now as an opportunity to pounce all over Him. He says in verse 12, those who seek My life lay their snares. Those who seek My hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. David's foot had slipped and his enemies, as soon as that happened, went on the attack. And unfortunately, even Christians can do this to each other become as godless enemies. Rather than being sorrowful, rather than being broken and even humbled, when another Christian falls, and especially when they repent, they pile onto it. They make more of it. They're like the unbeliever who just waits for a Christian to do something wrong so that they can say to everyone, see, a Christian's just like everyone else. Hypocrites. David is not only experiencing internal pain because of conviction, but there is even the external consequence that has come with his sin, both from his friends and his enemies. And all of this compounds. All of it piles onto each other. The consequences, the sorrow, the weakness, the heartache, all of this is often present in the experience of conviction to such an extent that it can feel as if you are sitting completely under the condemning hand of God. That He's he's cast you off completely. It can feel as if there's no grace for you at all. The Lord Himself has become your enemy and your enemy only. Which is why David says in the beginning of the psalm, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. What is happening to him in his conviction feels like wrath. God's fury, like that which he only pours out on his enemies is now aimed at David. The experience of conviction, particularly for a believer, can oftentimes be hard to distinguish between God's condemning wrath and His gracious discipline. In the moment while the discipline is being carried out, it can, of course, be very, very unpleasant. We know this, of course, even from our own experience of discipline, even as children. As a child, right? if you've done something wrong and it warrants discipline, when the rod comes, or when the privileges are removed, 
when the administration of the discipline comes down, it can be painful. And in that moment, it may be near impossible to see that your mother or your father loves you in that moment as it's being administered. All you can think about, all you can focus on is what you have lost or what you've been afflicted with. In that very moment, it may feel as if your parents are your enemy. Just like the discipline of the Lord and His convicting work, there is a vast, vast difference between the rod which comes with love and the rod which comes with fury. The rod of love is for our good. It is intended to shape us. It is intended to show us What is right? What is the path of righteousness? And what are the dangers of sin? It is intended to drive out sin from within us. Whereas the rod of fury brings destruction alone. There is no grace. There is no mercy. The rod... The rod can feel the same in the moment. It can feel just the same, but they produce radically different outcomes. Remember, we read earlier from Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah writing, he's under the rod the disciplining hand of God that has come upon all of His covenant people. He's experiencing exile. He's experiencing judgment. But what that rod does for Him is something very different from those who do not know the Lord. It is exclusively judgment for them. It is a means by which Jeremiah is brought to the point of looking to the Lord and saying, great is your faithfulness. The experience can seem very similar, but the outcomes are different. And so David is crying out to the Lord that His disciplining hand, which is pressed now heavy upon Him, would not come with wrath and judgment only, but that it would be mixed with grace and mercy. And this is the experience of conviction. It is painful. It shakes our peace. But if we belong to the Lord, it is for our good. Which leads us to the third note about conviction. Which is what we might call the light of conviction. The convicting work of the Lord is intended to shine a light on the ugliness, on the reality of our sin so that we might repent. So that we might see the graciousness of our God and trust in Him all the more. I think this is probably one of the most important lessons to learn about conviction. Many Christians, particularly in the Reformed circles, where there is a strong biblical understanding of the radical depravity of man. Many struggle to see anything but their own radical depravity. They look in their hearts. They read the Word. They listen to preaching. 
And at various times and in various ways, their sin is exposed. And they lament it, rightfully so. They're sorrowful over it. They truly hate it. They want nothing to do with it at all. But then they get stuck in this depressed, paralyzed state where there is never any joy. There's never any peace within them because all they're looking at is their sin. Brothers and sisters, the convicting work of the Lord is intended to bring us to repentance and faith. Which not only involves a right hatred for sin, but also a love for God. And a love for the One whom we see can and is willing to save us from those sins. He brings us low. God humbles us. He disciplines and He convicts us not so that we might remain in the dirt, but so that we might look to Him as the only One who can save us from those sins. Even in the midst of this great conviction that David has, that he describes in such detail, he says in verse 15, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. The Lord convicted him in order to bring him to a point where he would confess his sins, turn away from them, and in turning away from them, he would turn to the Lord, the very one whose hand lied heavy upon him, and he would receive from him forgiveness and relief. He calls the Lord at the very end of the psalm, the Lord of His salvation. And this is the Lord's will for us. That whenever the Lord convicts us of our sin, that we would recognize this as a gracious providence of the Lord awakening us from our sleep, and causing us to turn to Him. In the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of old Puritan prayers, there's a prayer called, Yet I Sin. And in it, the one who prays before God recognizes and he sees his sin much like David saw his. He says that he is vile, wretched, miserable, and blind. You know, those are, those are terms that people today, they, they don't often like to attribute to themselves. Vile? Wretched? I mean, isn't that a little strong? And oftentimes, it's the same Christians who love singing Amazing Grace as well. That saved a wretch like me. The person offering the prayer sees the ugliness of his sin. He speaks of how he's chosen to pursue desires that result in his own hurt and that bring consequences and provoke the Lord. But at the very end of the prayer, he looks to the Lord for forgiveness and he prays that through his tears of repentance, he will see more of the glories of the cross. He says, all these sins I mourn, lament, and for them cry pardon. Work in me more profound and abiding repentance. 
Give me the fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and loves, which is ever powerful and ever confident. Grant that through the tears of repentance I may see more clearly the brightness and the glories of the saving cross. True gospel spiritual conviction brings us to a deeper, more profound love of Christ the Savior. Because not only do we see our sins, but we see in Christ the One who sacrificed His own life. We see the One who gave up His very body to wash away all our sins and to cleanse us and to make us new. There is a very real sense in which we should see ourselves as the greatest sinners on earth. The chief of sinners, as Paul says, of himself. And I'm sure we could probably look at Paul's own life and say, I'm probably a bit worse than you were, Paul. But when the Lord shines His light upon our hearts, when His Word is living and active, when it exposes what is within, there is no other sin that is out there that compares to how great mine is. We are to see the reality of our own sin and to see it as great. Because if we see ourselves only as little sinners, then of course our love for Christ will be very little. But for the one, Jesus says, who has been forgiven much, He loves much. You think of Peter, in the passage we read earlier from Luke, the moment he comes to a realization of who he's standing in the presence of, he falls to the ground, crying out that he was a sinner. It's to such as these that the Lord seeks and saves. And when the Lord in His grace shows us that we are great sinners, He then exceeds that knowledge with the knowledge that He is an even greater Savior. And so as ugly as our iniquities may be, the light of the glory of the grace of God will always shine brighter. And so even when we are brought low, we raise our heads upwards to see Him who is seated on the throne forever to make intercession for us. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Father, in Adam we are all blind and deaf. And without understanding, without the fear of God within us. And yet in your kindness, you give us eyes to see. You give us ears to hear. And often with these new eyes, when we see what is within us, it brings us low and it displeases us. And yet we know from Your Word that this is for the purpose of bringing us closer to the only One who can save us from this wretched body of sin. And it brings us to a greater hope 
of the one who will ultimately raise our bodies themselves to new life. It makes us look to the one who will free us completely and forever from every dominion of sin. So Lord, I pray that you would help us all look to your gracious hand of discipline and that when you bring it upon us, we would repent and we would know the great grace of the forgiveness of sins. And we would be able to say, you are my salvation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.